everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm going to be talking about the life of Johnny Cash. He has always been a character, a person, a musician that's been so fascinating to me ever since I really um, started diving deep into his story. And it all started with the film Walk the Line that stars Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon. I love that film. I truly think it's one of the best music biopics that we have. It's really, really great. I mean, it's not 100% accurate in how it told the story of Johnny Cash's life and the sequence of things, but... It was accurate in a lot of other aspects too, and it totally blew the door open for me to learning more about his life. And so I figured, you know, I did the episode on Elvis, I did the episode on Clint Eastwood, and who else out there speaks of strong convictions in country music other than Johnny Cash? Um, So without further ado, I'm going to get started on Johnny Cash and what his upbringing was like. So Johnny Cash was actually born J.R. Cash in Kingsland, Arkansas on February 26, 1932. His parents were Carrie and Ray Cash, and he had a lot of siblings. When Johnny's voice broke, he emitted his rich bass tonality, and his mother said that God had his hands on him and to not forget that gift. So when John was very young in 1935, there was a farming development that was coming about in Northeast Arkansas, that was part of President Roosevelt's New Deal, which was to give a farmer and his family 20 acres of land, a house, and a mule to raise their family on this land. And this was called Dice Colony in Arkansas. Out of 600 farmers that applied for this New Deal, Johnny's father was just one of those people that actually won this 20-acre plot of land the shotgun shack house and a mule to help with the animals and the farming, things like that, um, which was awesome. So they packed up all of their things and they headed on over to Dice Colony and they started out just kind of farming. The big, I would say, I don't know if you would call it an export, but the biggest crop, that's what it is, Lindsay words, (laughs) the biggest crop um, that Johnny Cash's uh, family was farming was cotton and him and his parents and his other siblings, they would go outside and they would pick the cotton. And so they would go about their day um, farming and picking this cotton from like dusk until dawn. And uh, that's pretty much what would happen. So again, Johnny would kind of use his downtime when he could to listen to the radio. And this was forbidden in his house by his father because his father thought that Johnny was wasting his time listening to these records and that it would stop him from making an honest living. And one of these musicians that Johnny really loved to listen to on the radio was a group called the Carter Family. And this was um, a family uh, that consisted of a mother and her daughters that were singers and musicians. And one of these little girls in this Carter family, her name was June Carter. And June Carter would end up being Johnny Cash's future wife and mother to his child, John Carter Cash, which is so fascinating how this whole thing started. Like, Johnny was just a little kid in this plot of land out here in Arkansas. And Johnny and June's family was almost like royalty already. They were already extremely famous. So it almost seemed like it would be an absolute miracle for the two of them to even get together. But it would happen. Um, So again, you know, Johnny would kind of sing whenever they would go out into the field and pick the cotton. He would listen to the radio and his father would disown him in a way and just yell at him 
and to say, you're not listening to this radio. You're just not listening to this music. This is not what's best for you. Um, Johnny's father was very abusive and he was an alcoholic. Um, he would abuse his mother a lot. And, you know, he was verbally abusive to him and his siblings, um, which is obviously extremely unfortunate. Johnny actually said that um, his father never told his children that he loved them ever in his life, which is truly, truly sad and very, very unfortunate. Johnny, like I said, he had a couple of siblings, and one of his older siblings that Johnny was extremely close to was his older brother, Jack. Jack loved to hear Johnny sing. He would always be on Johnny about singing and, like, you know, keeping on singing the gospel music and the hymns, and he told Johnny that that's what he was supposed to do with his life. And Johnny called Jack his protector and his mentor. So, the day was May 12th, 1944. Jack and Johnny would always go fishing together, but on this day in particular, Jack said that he couldn't go because he had to work. Um, so Jack's job at this time, he was a kid, he was working at a local sawmill uh, cutting and chopping down trees. And the crazy thing about this story that I didn't know, because how they did it in the film was a little bit different, and I based my fact off of how the film did it, but in reality... On this day, Johnny's mother told Jack, you look like you don't want to go to work today. And Jack said, no, I don't. I actually don't want to go to work today because I feel like something bad is going to happen to me. And so his mother and Johnny tried very hard to get him to not go to work today. Oh, you know, skip work today, then don't go, you know, go fishing with me like you said you were going to do, you know, but Jack was like, no, listen, I have to go to work. You know, I have to support this family. I have to go to work. Very, very sad that he felt like he had to go, even though he intuitively knew something was wrong and something would have been wrong and something extremely bad would happen to him. He still pushed himself to go to work, which changed the course of Johnny's life forever. Well, Jack went to work and Johnny ended up going fishing at their usual a fishing spot by the river and he went by himself. And as Johnny walked home with his fishing pole, he noticed on the road coming towards him was his father's truck. And the truck pulled up next to Johnny, and in the passenger seat was a preacher. And this is where Johnny knew something was wrong. So his father just grabbed Johnny immediately, and they went home. And then when they got home, his father held a brown sack to Johnny. And in the sack, he pulled out Jack's bloody clothes. And he showed Johnny, you know, this is where the saw blade had gotten Jack. So essentially what had happened was Jack had an unfortunate accident where he got caught on the saw blade and the saw blade cut through um, his ribs and through to his uh, stomach. So gross and so horribly painful. But, you know, that's what happened to him. And so his father was like, look at these bloody clothes. And this is where the saw blade had gotten him. And horrible, disgusting things that he, you know, would show and tell Johnny. And so it was actually on this day that Johnny said this was the first time he had ever saw his father cry. So they're at home and after torturing, if you will, and traumatizing Johnny with the bloody clothes, his father told Johnny to go in the room and say his final goodbyes to Jack because Jack was dying. Um, so when Johnny went into the room, his mother was at the head of the bed and Jack was laying on the bed and he saw Johnny was there and he said, I'm glad you're all here. And he started to close his eyes. Um, and this is all Johnny saying this as he's recounting the story, which is 
extremely moving to me. Um, Johnny said that his brother closed his eyes and Jack said, it's a beautiful river. Mama, can't you see the river? And his mother said, no, I couldn't see it. And then Jack asked, can't you hear the angels? And then his mother said, no, I can't hear the angels. And Jack said, I wish you could hear them. They're so beautiful. And then unfortunately, that's when he passed away. This is obviously an extremely sore, traumatic point for Johnny because he was very close to Jack. Jack was like the one saving grace um, from his childhood and from his family that really believed in him and believed in his gift. And he was very close to him. Like Jack was his like protector against his father and things like that. Um, so Johnny felt like Jack's death was almost like sacrificial for Johnny's rise to fame. And that's an interesting way to put it. I suppose you could see it that way. Like, oh, Jack had to die so that Johnny could go through the following transitions in his life to get to where he needed to go. Regardless of that, Johnny remembered the songs that were playing at Jack's funeral, which again, they were in the deep south. They were all gospel hymnals. Johnny said it was then at that moment at his brother's funeral, hearing these gospel hymns, that Johnny knew that he was supposed to sing these songs for his career that he could not look at farming the same way ever again and that he couldn't follow in the footsteps of his father, that he had to do this thing with music. And also his brother Jack believed in him and so this is what he was doing. So now we're looking into the 50s. Johnny's a bit older now. Johnny would start off in the morning singing hillbilly songs. This was a typical day. And then by mid-afternoon out on the farm, he was then singing gospel songs and his other siblings would be singing along with him and his mother would be too. But his father obviously hated this. Um, his father just did not want to have any of this stuff. Um, but it's very nice that his mother truly was supportive of Johnny's career as a musician in saying that, you know, one day after graduating high school and leaving the farm that, you know, you would be a singer, she would say. And that's exactly what he did. After he graduated high school, he then left the farm. And he's like, I can't do this anymore. I just got to do something else. So this is where he hitchhiked to Pontiac, Michigan, all the way from Arkansas, which was a very long ways away. One of the first jobs he got was making 1951 Pontiacs. He said that after some time he got sick of doing this, uh, so he eventually did go back home to join the Air Force. He actually never saw combat, by the way, but as his role in the Air Force was that he was a radio technician. So. Um, as he would hear the incoming, what do you call it, like radio frequencies or the messages that he would then have to interpret. Um, obviously, because of his keen ear and his sense of sound, due to his knowledge with music and singing, this was like the perfect job for him to do at the Air Force. Once he joined in the Air Force, he was first sent to Texas, and this was his first post. And it was here in Texas that he would meet his first wife, Vivian, at a local skating rink. And he had said that they had only been on about three dates together before he then had to leave for his next post. But according to him, they were mad about each other. They were already talking about marriage and they even had like set a date to get married. You know, he knew that he wanted to be with her and start a family with her and that he wanted to sing and make records like he could he could picture his future so clearly in his mind's eye that this is what he knew he needed to do. He met Vivian and then he left to go on his next couple of posts and he stayed in the army for a couple of years away from her. He said a week after he enlisted in the Air Force that the Korean War broke out. So 
It just so happened to be kind of interesting timing.、Uh, he said that he was in the military for the Korean War, but he was sent over to Germany to go along his radio intercepting work. That's what you want to call it: radio transmissions or intercepting. You understand what I'm trying to say here. He didn't see combat, is what I'm trying to say. And obviously, he got very lonely while he was there. And while he was、uh, scouring around in Germany and through all the other places, he happened to buy himself an acoustic guitar and kind of hide it away from everyone. And would only play the guitar when he was like by himself, so that no one could like overhear him. While he was also in the war, he went to see a film with his army buddies, and this film was called Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison. And Folsom Prison would be an extremely important theme in his life. Obviously, we know him to have gone to Folsom Prison to write songs about Folsom and then to perform at Folsom Prison. But he said that the movie got to him because he thought that how the prisoners in Folsom lived and felt were very similar to how military personnel would feel as well. Like he he resonated. With these men that were trapped in Folsom Prison, and he felt the same. He resonated with that message, and so it was here after watching this film that he woke from his bed that night and he started to write the song Folsom Prison Blues. He said he could relate again to his time in the Air Force to the prisoners at Folsom. So he wrote the story Folsom Prison Blues, obviously as a fictitious story, but. He wrote it so well that he resonated with the story. So it's really, really cool how that whole thing came about. As his time in the military was dwindling, the military actually tried to get Johnny to stay longer because he was so good at his job. But he said no. He was going to go home and sing on the radio again. He had no problem saying to people, "I'm going to be on the radio." He had all the conviction in the world that this is what he was going to do. He didn't care if people laughed at him or said, "No, no, 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 no. You will never be on the radio." He totally believed it himself, and he knew this was going to happen. So I love that for him. He knew when he came back home that he would never be happy working on the farm ever again. So his only option was to 100% dive in deep into the radio life and making a career as a musician. So when he got back home, him and Vivian got married right away. They ended up buying a house and a car in Memphis, Tennessee, and then he started to focus. On shifting his career and then getting on the radio. Now, one of the jobs that they showed him doing in the film was being like a door-to-door -door salesman,、um, and that was true as well. He didn't like that job, obviously, because people would shut the door in his face. One day, I think this is actually insane because this goes hand in hand with Elvis's story. Like Elvis is in Memphis at this time as well, and then Johnny moved to Memphis at this time and starting to become a musician. It just happened literally at the same time, and their paths ended up meeting. One of Johnny's older brothers lived in Memphis as well, and Johnny went down to see him one day in 1955. His brother said that he knew of two guys who were looking to do music, and asked if Johnny wanted to join them. And this is where Johnny's band would come together. So it was Johnny, a man named Luther on guitar, and Marshall on bass, and the three of them would become Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two. The three men would sit on their porch, and in no time, the neighbors flocked around to hear them play the guitar. What's also really fascinating was Johnny had mentioned that him and Vivian went to see one of Elvis's first shows off of the back of a flatbed truck. 
Elvis gets signed to Sun Records in Memphis, Tennessee. Well, Johnny caught wind of this fact and he stumbled upon Sun Records one day and Sun Records was owned by a man named Sam Phillips. And at the time, Sam Phillips was looking for white musicians that sounded black to go on his label. This was not Johnny Cash. <laughs> so uh, Johnny was very adamant that he see Sam Phillips and that he record a single, that he cut a single. Well, when Johnny went to see Sam Phillips, he told him that he was a gospel singer, but Sam didn't do gospel. So he's like, come back when you have something else. Well, one day while Johnny was waiting for Sam to get into Sun Records, Johnny started playing a couple of Jimmy Rogers and Carter family songs just to kind of show him what he had in his repertoire. But Sam was like, no, 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 no. Gospel doesn't sell. Play me something else. And so it was here that Johnny played him a song called Hey Porter. And this was a song that Johnny had written. That was the first single that Johnny cut with Sun Records. And of course, it was here as well that he would become friends with Elvis Presley. I love it. I just love the interconnection. So one of his next biggest hits was the song called I Walk the Line, which was recorded in 1956. And this was written for his wife, Vivian, just to kind of proclaim his love and ever undying devotion to her, that he walks the line towards her and for her and he doesn't stray. Well, after three attempts with moderate chart ratings, the song became Johnny's first number one hit on the Billboard charts, eventually reaching number 17 on the US pop charts. The unique chord progression for I Walk the Line was inspired by the backwards playback of guitar runs on Johnny's tape recorder while he was stationed in Germany. That's pretty interesting. He said that I wrote the song backstage one night in 56 in Gladewater, Texas. I was newly married at the time and I suppose I was laying out my pledge of devotion. And it was here that Johnny found himself going on tour with three amazing musicians of the time, Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Carl Perkins. So the four men went on to tour together and they also recorded an album together. This group, as they knew it, this kind of super group, was called the Million Dollar Quartet. They literally one day recorded an impromptu uh, jam album. So how the story goes was Carl Perkins was already met with success with his song Blue Suede Shoes. So Carl Perkins was already at the studio one day to record some new material. Sam Phillips had brought in Jerry Lee Lewis, who was still unknown outside of Memphis, to play the piano on Carl's recording sessions. Well, it just so happened that sometime in the afternoon, Elvis Presley would then come in as well. Now, at the time, Elvis had already transitioned to the big label RCA Victor, but he came in just to say hello, and he was with his girlfriend, Marilyn Evans, at the time, just to say hello. How funny is this? Like, after chatting for some time... Elvis listened to the playback of Carl Perkins' sessions with Jerry Lee Lewis, and he said, yeah, this is good. He went into the studio sometime later, and the jam sessions between the three of them began. But then at some point, Johnny Cash comes in, and uh, they all just started playing together. This was like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of recording. And it's funny because Jack Clement at the time was the engineer for the day, and he remembers seeing this happening in real time. And he thought to himself, well, hot damn, I'd be remiss to not record this. And so he pressed the record button and he let it all get captured on tape and it got put into an album. Can you believe that? I haven't heard this personally, but I would be so keen to hear this. 
So like I mentioned, Johnny was going on tour with Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Carl Perkins. They were hanging out together. They became the best of friends, and they were along the way making music and playing a lot of shows. Johnny was surprised when he saw that his records were selling very quickly. He thought it was all hype. But every record he made, they knew, the record label knew that he would sell at least 250,000 copies, which is a lot. He soon realized the more he grew as an artist and the more time he had to spend away from his wife and his children, his daughters, that it would cause frictions within him and his wife Vivian and the family because he was relentlessly pursuing his dream, his passion. This is what he loved to do. And at first, Vivian was very supportive of him doing his music. And that's the thing as well that the film got wrong. The film showed that Vivian hated it from the get-go, which is not true. Vivian was supportive of him. It was only when Johnny was away from the family a lot, and then he would eventually fall prey to a future uh, addiction and possible cheating that she was not pleased. As the stress and pressure from driving all the time from gig to gig uh, was building, another musician turned to Johnny and gave him some pills, uppers and downers. The uppers, obviously, was to give him a boost of adrenaline and energy to keep him going and playing these gigs, and then the downers to come down at the end of the day and sleep. Well, this is where he would get addicted to these pills. One of Johnny's biggest hits around this time as well was a single called Big River and then Cry Cry Cry. That was another song that he was very famous for. So uh, he was making a name for himself, and he was approached by Don Law of Columbia Records, which was another big daddy label. He said, listen, if I'm joining Columbia Records, am I going to be permitted to make gospel music? Because that was the core of Johnny Cash. He was very adamant that he sang gospel hymnal music. Like he was infatuated with it. He felt it within his soul that that's what he wanted to sing. And the record was like, yeah, 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 of course. If you join our label, Columbia, of course, you can sing all the gospel songs to your heart's content, no problem. Well, Johnny said it was traumatic at the time leaving Sam Phillips at Sun Label, but Columbia was a massive label, and that would help him reach more people with his music and the strong message that he would give in his music as well, which is very important to him. This is a bit of a long quote, but I thought it was a very important one that I wanted to share. So this is a quote that Johnny has to say on his life at this point. Life is a matter of choices. When it came to either staying home with the family or going on the road and working in the music business, I felt like I was born to perform, born to sing, born to write and record. It took me away from my family. My kids suffered and Vivian suffered. The music business was taking me away from her. I wasn't there for graduations and school plays. I wasn't there to see them dress up for the proms. Writing and singing all night long, I let it roll off me. Made a lot of records. I did a lot of traveling to living the life of a rambler. It was kind of at this point that Johnny was really slipping into his pill addiction and Vivian was afraid one day this could possibly kill you and she begged him to stop taking these pills but unfortunately he just was so addicted that he kept taking them. Well, one day, as fate would have it, like I mentioned much earlier in this episode, Johnny and June Carter would end up crossing paths in 1962 when she was performing 
for and with Johnny Cash on stage. They met backstage and Johnny, again, from day one of his childhood, had a massive crush on her. He loved her. He was very smitten with her and he said that he liked her a little too much from the beginning. And uh, she did as well. The feelings were mutual, but the problem was they were both married to other people at this time. So nothing was to happen between them for a long time. Um, however, Johnny would keep June very close to him and he would bring the Carter family on a lot of his shows um, and tours that he would do because he loved her family so much, but also he had a thing for June Carter. So he's like, you know what? This is the perfect end for me to uh, have her close to me. So while the 50s for Johnny Cash and his career was filled with a lot of highs and a lot of immediate success right away, the 60s was a really interesting period and the tonality shift is quite different. He said the 60s for him was the period where he recorded a lot of music, particularly concept albums that featured Western and country themes. And he said, I could really get into the flavor of the West in my emotions and my spirit. I felt like I was accomplishing something real. And the 60s was also kind of a struggle for him because Johnny was really looking to put a serious message behind his music. So for example, a lot of these albums he was making in the 60s were talking about the plights of women, minorities, Native Americans, um, etc, etc. Like a lot of um, marginalized groups of people that he would bring to the centerfold of his music and would tell their stories. The record labels hated this because he was kind of going solo. <laughs> like he kind of just wanted to do this music regardless of what people thought about it. People just didn't want to hear this kind of music. And unfortunately, this would cause a lot of backlash against Johnny Cash. And this would cause a lot of negative reviews of Johnny Cash and people not listening or buying his music. Johnny was aware of all of this all the pushback he was getting. The radio's not playing his music, so he bit back where he took out a full page in Billboard magazine one year in the 60s. And he wrote an article where he openly chastised the radios and the DJs, and he called these people's gutless. He said this, DJs, station engineers, owners, etc., where are your guts? classify me, categorize me, stifle me, but it won't work. He didn't give a flying F what people thought about him. And he was specifically coming for their throats by saying that you're gutless by not playing this music that actually has a strong message. At this point in time, he made a very important connection in the music industry where Bob Dylan was another pioneer in the same folk country genre, but more so folk Bob Dylan, obviously, he's very political outright. He speaks his mind. And he himself has shared a lot of uh, stories in his music as well. And Johnny Cash flocked to Bob Dylan. He loved Bob Dylan so much that he wrote a letter to Bob. He really wanted to connect with Bob Dylan because he felt like they were like kindred spirits that the two of them just understood what the more important overarching umbrella message was in music that it was not to just like sell records and like make a lot of money and to get popular it was about having a message in the music that means so much to him and johnny was all for this friendship it was during one performance that johnny was to give on stage where he would sing bob dylan's song don't think twice it's all right that would kind of cement their friendship 
um, because throughout the years, Bob would come on to Johnny Cash's show and perform live. And so the two of them struck up a really tight friendship. Uh, but it was unfortunately at this point in time as well that his pill addiction grew stronger and stronger and stronger to where he would then develop mood issues, like anger issues, right? He mentioned a time where on stage during one of his concerts, he had a problem with the microphone stand. It wasn't like coming up as fast as he wanted it to. And so he slammed it on the ground and it accidentally hit one of the lights. And he mentioned that the way that the microphone stand sparked the lights was so fascinating to him. He then dragged the microphone across the stage just to make all the other lights explode. Um, that's what the pills did to him. And so it was at this point in time where he said he would just throw things just to throw things, make a mess just to make a mess. Like, you know, the pills were doing a lot. And he would get arrested about six times in the 60s, he said, due to, you know, narcotics and drugs. The 60s was also wrought with some success on some level because one of Johnny's most famous songs that I think out of his whole entire career, this song is the most famous song that he's ever linked to. And we all know it, Ring of Fire. And it burns, burns, burns the Ring of Fire. Well, this was released in 1963 and it was penned by June Carter. She wrote this from the perspective of her and her stance towards Johnny Cash and like her feelings for Johnny Cash and like what she thought about Johnny Cash. And he recorded this and she said this, June said, it was not a convenient time for me to fall in love with him and it wasn't a convenient time for him to fall in love with me. One morning about four o'clock, I was driving my car just about as fast as I could. I was miserable and it all came to me. I'm falling in love with somebody I have no right to fall in love with. I thought, I can't fall in love with this man, but it's just like a ring of fire. Enough said. It's one of the best songs that he ever has in his repertoire and she wrote it on account of their relationship. She would get divorced two times during the 60s and Johnny and his wife Vivian would end up divorcing in 67. You know, Vivian thought to herself that Johnny was having an affair with June Carter because she could see that Johnny had an affinity for her. It was not true. They were not having an affair with each other, but obviously he couldn't deny that he had feelings for her, but Johnny and Vivian would end up divorcing in 67, and then June would end up being newly single around this time as well. It all kind of came together in an interesting way in 1967, where after all the lingering emotions he felt for June, the divorce with his wife Vivian and him, you know, leaving his family, um, and then the ups and downs in the industry with the record label not wanting to back him with a lot of the music he wanted to make, with a lot of his own internal struggles with the death of his brother Jack that has continued to haunt him, and then his own insecurities, and then the addiction to pills, Johnny kind of had an epiphany in 67, and he finally allowed himself to get off the pills. And thankfully he did because in 1968, this saw a massive turnaround in his career where he would perform live at Folsom Prison. And this was huge because it was almost in a, in a way, kind of like a comeback, if you will, in his career. But this got made into a live album. Now he got a lot of backlash from this. If you can imagine, people did not want Johnny to go to a prison and sing to all the inmates, the criminals in prison, right? And Johnny was like, listen, I'm doing it anyway. I don't give an F what you think. I'm gonna do it. He did it, and it became one of his best albums. 
It won Album of the Year in 1968, by the way, so you know that he did it right. And June was there performing with him as well. So June Carter was there, Johnny was there, and his band was there performing to the inmates at Folsom Prison. And also, in 1967, this is amazing, Johnny and June Carter got engaged. Now, can you imagine they met all those years ago? They had feelings for each other, but it was not the right time. Johnny was now, at this point, getting clean. He was professing his love for June, and she was like, I don't know about this, but he proposed to her multiple times, and she said, nope, that ain't happening. It was during one of their concerts in London, Ontario in February 1968 to an audience of a thousand people where he publicly asked her to marry him. No pressure. Absolutely no pressure, but she said yes. Of course, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, but it was like a really big thing had like happened in his life and now he was happy. Well, in the following year, in 1969, Johnny actually gets his own TV show on ABC called The Johnny Cash Show. And it was here where he would bring a lot of his celebrity musician friends to play live on stage on his show and like interview them and talk to them. And again, he would give a big platform to minority groups and marginalized groups of people and give them a platform, which I thought was very awesome for a man in his position to do um, so that's just one of the things that now he's starting to come up in his career again after he got married. Johnny would end up going back to Folsom Prison performing in 1969 where he recorded at San Quentin at the San Quentin State Prison and he did an album entitled At San Quentin and this became Johnny's first album to hit number one on the pop chart and produced the number two hit A Boy Named Sue. This is where he was destined to be. You know, he had a message for the people. And again, he always felt akin to these inmates at Folsom Prison because of his time at the Air Force. He felt akin to them. Now, this is a really interesting story I never knew about, but, you know, Johnny would get fan mail from some of the inmates at Folsom Prison saying like, oh, this is me. This is my crime. I feel like I'm trapped here, blah, blah, blah. Well, Johnny ends up getting um, a letter, if you will, from one of the inmates at Folsom Prison, his name was Glenn Shirley. Glenn Shirley had written a song called Greystone Chapel, and Johnny heard about this. He saw the song and the lyrics, and well, Johnny ended up recording the song. Johnny tried his best to like hone his capabilities on Glenn Shirley and give him a new lease on life. So Johnny was actually able to get Glenn out of Folsom Prison. He was almost in a way responsible for Glenn's life outside of prison. He tried to get Glenn to making music, recording songs, getting him to play on stage with Johnny Cash. Like Johnny Cash became Glenn's mentor. Glenn had a hard time readjusting to life outside of Folsom Prison. And unfortunately, Glenn wound up addicted to drugs struggled with his newfound stardom. He couldn't understand how to live a new life. It was very difficult. So unfortunately, a Glenn would end up taking his own life in 1978, not long after he, you know, tried to make some kind of music career. And Johnny always thought that this was one of his biggest failures was because he, he put so much pressure on himself over Glenn and his well-being that he thought this was my fault. And so unfortunately, after Glenn's death, Johnny wound up addicted again to his pills um, and it just spiraled. Johnny was cast aside from his record label and for a long time he tried to find himself. You know, this was the 80s, we're coming into the 90s, you know. 
it's it's challenging to even comprehend how Johnny could go on making a career and people thought his career was over. I think even Johnny thought his career was over. Like he, you know, this was the 80s, 90s, and it was just, he didn't make a lot of music at this time. He was addicted again to the pills because of how he thought about himself and his situation. Well, an angel by the name of Rick Rubin got a hold of Johnny Cash, and Rick asked Johnny if he could record Johnny singing. Rick goes to Johnny and he's like, I want to help you. Will, you. will you allow me to record you? and help you get back on your feet. Well, Johnny was a little bit skeptical and he thought, I've done everything in my career. What can this Rick Rubin guy do for me? Like what, what things different could he possibly do for my career? Well, he allowed Johnny to do what he wanted to do. I think for the first time in his career, he sat on Rick Rubin's couch, just with a guitar and a microphone and his own voice, and he sang about 200 songs. It just flowed freely through him and it rejuvenated his career. This was an all-acoustic album, and it was put out to the people, and people loved it. And people, this is a new generation of people, by the way. Again, this is the 80s, 90s. People were so infatuated again with Johnny Cash. It was like a rebirth of Johnny Cash to a new generation of people. People were excited to see him again. And, you know, after people were just loving this acoustic album that Johnny made with Rick Rubin, they went in again to record a proper studio album, you know, with a backing band and such. And the people in this backing band were handpicked to help him out. And some of these people were Tom Petty, Mick Fleetwood, Lindsey Buckingham, etc. I mean, this totally revamped his entire image and career and he got back on track. I'm glad that this happened for him. He could have gone down the worst spiral and just ended it all. But Rick Rubin helped see that Johnny Cash had potential. You know, Johnny was an old man at this point. You know, his voice was a bit more coarse and rough and textured. And he was like, Johnny has this potential and he's just sitting here not doing anything about it. So Rick's like, I'm going to help him. Well, fair enough to Rick Rubin for helping to revitalize Johnny Cash's career. Now we're coming into the 2000s. Um, unfortunately, Miss June Carter Cash passed away on May 15th, 2003. Johnny loved her. June was Johnny's every reason to live and breathe. June passed away. It was like Johnny as well started dying a slow death. Um, his health quickly deteriorated and he was confined to a wheelchair. He couldn't imagine a life without her. Even though he didn't physically move around anymore for tours and things, he kept up with recording music every day because this is what she knew that he needed to do to be okay, but that he found a new way to cope with life and grief by recording. If he couldn't physically get up to tour, he would at least record something. And so that's what he did until four months later. On September 12th, 2003, Johnny Cash followed his wife and he passed away. Very sad. But you know, you could say he died of a broken heart, that he couldn't imagine living his life without his soulmate, his, his life. This woman that helped nurse him from life and death and back to life again, that he loved since he was a child, listening to her on the radio. And then he married her, and they had a son together, and they had a blended family together. And it was beautiful, and she just loved to sing with him, and she took care of him, and she loved him, and 
When she died, a part of him died and he just went not long after her. That, in a nutshell, is the story of Johnny Cash. I think it's a very fascinating one that he had a lot of strife, that he kind of kept a closed door on for a lot of his life. While the man was not perfect, while the man certainly had a lot of demons that were eating away at him every day, he lived by his own rules and he lived the life that he wanted to live and he actively showed people that, hey, I have something to say here. It's not just about making a song just to make a song and make money and be famous and popular. It's not about that. It's about me actually having something to say to you and you listen to me. I'm glad that he lived the life that he wanted to live. Unfortunately, you know, he had a lot of strife as well within his family and interpersonal life and then as well with the drugs, but he just found a reason to keep on going until he didn't have one anymore when June passed away. We can all agree that Johnny Cash, the man in black himself, was extremely talented and I'm so grateful for the music that he has left. He's just so incredibly talented. Um, but thank you guys for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed and that you learned something today that you hadn't known about before. I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.